Coming up today, a potential roadblock on the route to nuclear fusion and how the Kremlin infiltrated Russia's biggest social media network. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Elon Musk put his planned takeover of Twitter on hold over what he says are concerns over the number of spam bots on the platform. Musk has demanded proof that the number of fake accounts on Twitter is less than 5% of the total before progressing with the $44 billion deal. And it was also the week when Netflix laid off more than 150 staff just weeks after announcing it was losing subscribers for the first time in a decade. The streaming giant lost 200,000 subscribers in the first three months of 2022 and it expects to lose 2 million more in the coming quarter. And Google's Russian subsidiary filed for bankruptcy after the authorities seized its bank account. The company has been clashing with Russia's government for months after failing to delete content Moscow considers to be illegal. And finally, this was the week when Bitcoin managed to bounce back after an 18-month price low over the weekend. The cryptocurrency was trading at just over $30,000 on Friday, days after the downturn wiped $1.5 trillion from the market. I feel like Bitcoin is always on this sort of roller coaster ride where it goes down, but then eventually it goes up again. And I feel like in six months, we're going to be talking about record prices, Natasha. I don't know about that, Amit. <laughs> I think, you think this is it? I, I'm very sceptical. I'm very sceptical. Um, but then again, I was sceptical ahead of the really high prices the last time. So what do I know? Um, it fluctuates a lot, right? This is this is the whole point of, of crypto. It's a completely different market. So... I'm thinking of selling all my ape NFTs and trading it in and, and buying Bitcoin instead. Do you think I should do that? I would not provide financial advice willingly to anyone. Do you um, think you could handle the stress of it going up and down all the time? No, no, I don't think I could. I think I would be constantly refreshing it. I think it'd be very upsetting. But there's this kind of lingering stress of like, and I'm sure a lot of people are in this scenario, particularly people that listen to this podcast, where probably when we started talking about Bitcoin years and years and years ago, if we'd bought in at that point, we'd be millionaires, right? Well, billionaires, yeah. or at least we would have been until a few weeks ago. There's a clerk at a Chambers who bought, who I know quite well from years ago, who bought some Bitcoin when I first joined Wired. And he would text me in the first year of me joining Wired. He'd text me all the time just being like, I've lost so much money. I've lost so much money. It was somehow like he tied it to my success. He was just like, oh, it's going really badly. It's really bad. I can't believe I, like, I, I, I voted for you in order to get all this Bitcoin. It's just ridiculous. So, yeah, I just think don't make um, investments that are based on thinking that it's cool. <laughs> Good advice. Good You're advice welcome. all round. All right, let's move on to our interesting facts this week. What did you learn, Matt Reynolds? So I learned about something called anting, which is where certain bird species deliberately rub ants or other insects onto their feathers as a way to kill parasites and bacteria. So the insects secrete substances like formic acid, which can kill pathogens, and then they have the added benefits of making the ants safe to eat. So they kind of scrub them on them like a like a loofah or something, and they're like, oh yeah, thanks guys, I'll, I'll, I'll eat you as well. So really nice little you know, nature. It's lovely, isn't it? 
Yeah, certainly very... Like eating breakfast in the shower, I suppose. <laughs> Efficient, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and they can get on with the rest of their day. Uh, Natasha, what did you learn this week? I learned from National Geographic that when Asian elephants are feeling stressed or upset, their fellow pachyderms will attempt to provide comfort by caressing them with their trunks and offering chirps of sympathy. Good, uh, good second mention there. I enjoyed that. Fellow pachyderms, so you didn't have to repeat the word elephants. That's very elegant. Thank you. <laughs> and um, what do you think one of these chirps of sympathy might sound like? I have no idea. What do you think it might sound like, Amit? <laughs> oh, you're not going to get me that easily. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our first story this week. Natasha, it's over to you. So um, we've obviously been following uh, Russia's crackdown on tech companies that's been going on for a few months now since the invasion of Ukraine. But there's been one company, a social media company, which is the equivalent of Facebook in Russia, that has done quite well for itself, and that's VK. Um, now, Morgan has been taking a close look as uh, into the sort of relationship that that company has with the government and how it's been taking over. Morgan, tell us more. Yes, so Vcontacte, which is also known as VK, has been one of the few social networks in the whole world, basically, to really pose a challenge to US companies like Facebook and Twitter in their home market. Um, but the end of, by the end of last year, VK had about 46 million daily active users. So that's quite a lot compared to Facebook, which only had around 7.5 million. But since the war in Ukraine, VK has also been kind of on the front line of the Kremlin's information war. So not only has the platform banned its users from spreading information about the war, it has also become a major beneficiary of Russia's ban on its competitors uh, like Facebook and Instagram. The company said it experienced a 25% jump in the amount of content posted to its newsfeed in the month after the war. And its daily user numbers surged to a record 50 million people at the same time. Um, so VK has also kind of been actively chasing its competitors' clients. It's published a step-by-step guide for businesses about how to migrate away from international platforms. So, I mean, all this kind of put together, that's what made me want to unpick the story of VK and ask kind of, as all these other companies are failing or getting kicked out of Russia, how is it that VK managed to survive and even thrive on Russia's increasingly restrictive internet? And the story is really fascinating. It's basically about how this company traded its independence bit by bit in order to adapt and grow against the backdrop of Putin's Russia. So you spoke to eight uh, current and former employees of the company. And it, it sounded like from what they were saying, it started out like a normal tech company. It was very kind of a Western story, right? A bunch of friends in their garage kind of tried to grow something that would be, you know, exciting and new. And they tried to hire like-minded people as engineers and developers to help working, work on this, on this really exciting new platform. And then it went from that to being controlled by Gazprom, which is under state control itself. And it's a huge conglomerate. Gazprom Media, which owns loads of TV stations and radio stations as well. How did that happen? Yeah, so it's this fascinating story. So VK was founded in 2006 by the now very famous Pavel Durov. Back then, he was like the Elon Musk of Russia. So he was always in the media. He would kind of pose for photos flanked by like 10 models. Um, and, but another reason he was always in the public eye was because of these clashes with the government over refusing the authorities' request to ban groups or delete content that was circulating on VK. Then basically, long story short, in 2014, things got really weird. The police said he had run over a police officer's foot with a white Mercedes. Durov said he didn't even drive. He went into 
hiding. It's not really clear what actually happened, but basically this whole saga ended with Duroff being pushed out of the company he founded and through a series of deals and share sales, full control of VK ended up with Mail.ru, which was controlled through a holding company by a man called Alisher Usmanov. So Usmanov was considered a Kremlin, he still is considered a Kremlin-friendly oligarch. So he's recently been sanctioned by the UK government because they consider him to be closely associated with Putin's regime. And it was VK's closeness to Usmanov that set off alarm bells for people who'd watch other companies in sensitive industries like energy or traditional media be shifted between different owners to basically bring them closer under government control. So it all seemed quite familiar. So that was back in 2014. Then if we fast forward to last year, 2021, the company loses even more of its independence and moves even closer to the Kremlin. It goes from being controlled by a Kremlin-friendly oligarch to being owned by companies that are affiliated with Gazprom, as you said, in which the Russian state owns a majority. And its new CEO is basically the son of one of Putin's closest aides. His name is Vladimir Kirienko, the CEO's name. It's interesting because sort of having the privilege of, of editing this piece, um, you sort of see the comments from people going from, you had a man in charge, Durov, who was basically saying, I don't care about what the government wants. That's not the game I'm playing. To Usmanov, who was basically saying, oh, look, you know, guys, please, like, of course, you know, to the Russian government, like, we, we've got to comply with your request. But, you know, you're making it really hard for us to compete on an international level. And then you've suddenly got this latest scenario, this latest iteration of Gazprom ownership, where VK is very much cracking down and following the party line of what they should and shouldn't have on the internet. So how, how the hell did this happen? You have a major company with an international presence competing against big tech. How did Russia slowly get its hands on it to control it in this manner? Yeah, so it's actually, I mean, Usmanov is quite a kind of quiet figure. So it's actually Rogozov, who's another kind of one of VK's uh, former CEO who was making those comments about how he kind of thought the company had no choice but to comply. But basically, every time the platform experiences a dramatic change in ownership, it's in a moment of weakness. So the first time VK is taken over by Mail.ru and Pavel Durov is pushed out, it's at the same time, it's struggling financially under pressure from multiple music companies who are suing it for the flow of pirated music that exists on the platform. The second time it gets taken over by Gazprom affiliates is at another moment when the company needs investors because VK is under pressure to grow and compete with US big tech platforms, which are basically encroaching on its home turf. So whether these moments are orchestrated or opportunistic, it's quite hard to tell. But another major way the government managed to tame the company was through legislation. So lots of people told me that pre-2011, there was basically no internet laws in Russia, quite like a lot of other places. So VK and the Russian internet as a whole was pretty much anything goes kind of space. That changed in 2011 when basically thousands of people joined anti-government protests across the country and they used sites like VK to organise. So Putin's re-election as president in 2012 was followed by a wave of regulation designed to crack down on content perceived to be offensive to children. But a lot of this, these laws ended up being leveraged against opposition activists or people who are posting things that supported Ukraine. 
Yeah, it's interesting because over the years, people went from organising on the platform to being convinced that the platform was sharing information about its users with the government in order to pursue them and to jail them, which which is a really interesting kind of loss of, of trust. And there were people that were working in there at the time that who said to you that it wasn't so much that, the, that they were sharing information with the police. It was more that the police were using the social media platform itself to track down uh, people to find them on the on the site so that they could pursue them that way, which is you know disturbing in of itself. But but it's interesting because when you look at the sort of timeline of what's happened, and as you say, there might be opportunities that have been orchestrated or not for for Russia's government to take on more control. But it, it is kind of tied to the relationship that Russia's had with, especially Ukraine and the conflicts there. A lot of the protests that have taken place on the platform have triggered different bits of legislation that have allowed Russia to take up more control. But how, how exactly has Ukraine specifically been used as a reason in this way? Yes, yeah, so I think kind of Ukraine's involvement in VK's story is another reason why it's so interesting to step back and look at this platform's history now. Um, Because VK, I mean, Ukraine has been this flashpoint in VK's evolution for years. So in the Pavel Durov era, VK clashed with the government for refusing to remove posts and groups promoting the Euromaidan protests in Kyiv in 2014. Then after years of conflicts between the two neighbours, Ukraine and Russia, in 2017, Ukraine's then president banned VK, basically wiping 14 million Ukrainian users off the platform overnight. So according to people I spoke to, that put the platform in a difficult position commercially, obviously to lose so many users so suddenly. And it also laid the groundwork and that also laid the groundwork for the most recent takeover. So the conflict in Ukraine has not only caused the platform to clash with the government and commercially commercially weakened it, it's also kind of created an incentive for the Kremlin to crack down on online speech. So VK's fate has been sort of intertwined with Ukraine for years, even before Russia invaded it most recently. Sort of a double-edged sword or a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know what metaphor you want to use there, but it's it's, it's really it's an interesting scenario. And now we've got if you fast forward to the to the present day, you've got Vladimir Kirienko Jr., whose dad is bezer mates with Vladimir Putin and his right hand man. He put it was put in as CEO in December 2021. It appears in a promotional video to try to persuade everyone at VK that he's a good guy. Swaps his normal suit for like. I don't know, some jeans and some new balance trainers to try to look cool, try to look the part. Does this video, everyone's like, Ugh, he's a bit of a weirdo. Um, the, <laughs> the people that you spoke to, they didn't really like him, right? So tell me, what, what do they think he's doing now? What do they think about the direction that he's taking in the company? So apparently Kirienko has told employees that he wants to he wants to move VK away from the privacy politics the platform's basically come enmeshed in within Russia. But there's like a lot of concern that his appointment just kind of spells the end of VK's independence from the government. So one person I spoke to who still works at VK said they felt really sad because they basically they wanted to be part of this global tech industry. They wanted to they wanted to win Russians back from Facebook and Instagram kind of because of the platform's features and the products that they built. They don't want to have just like this victory handed to them because all the other platforms have been kicked out. And they don't want to be just a cog in a government IT machine, which is what they're worried that VK is now going to become. Um, and and there is concern that the platform will become even more willing to carry out government requests. So even though the company earned a reputation under mail Aru ownership as extremely compliant. It did still challenge some takedown requests. So in March 2021, for example, 
The UK refused to remove content calling for participation in protests in support of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. For that, the platform was fined $20,000. And employees and former employees I spoke to are worried that this latest change of ownership marks the end of even the smallest signs of dissent. So I think one interesting sign of that is Alexei Navalny's VK page, which had somehow managed to survive all the way through VK's history, was finally banned in March this year. So you you spoke um, as part of this piece to the former CEO of VK, Andrew Rogozov. What does he think about the state of play now? Yeah, so I think he's a really interesting character and he kind of encapsulates the adaptability of the platform or that the platform tried to assume. So he believes the platform had to comply with government requests under his leadership in order to grow as a business and VK needed to grow to compete with Uh, other companies like WhatsApp and YouTube that were really popular among Russians. Um, But to do that, it needed investment. And in a country like Russia, who's sitting on enough money to provide that kind of investment? Basically, only people who are allied with the government. So he had quite a pragmatic approach to it, kind of, this is just business in Russia. This is how it gets done. It's worth saying that Kirienko um, declined to comment for this story. So that was was something that we should include. Um, I wanted to kind of move on to, to obviously all the people that left VK. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of people in Ukraine, uh, but a lot of people in, in Russia might be thinking, you know, I don't want to be part of a social media site that's so closely linked to the Russian government. Um, the only glimmer of hope on the Russian internet seems to be Telegram, which was ironically set up by the same person as as VK. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that link and about what might happen next there? Yeah, so I I quite like this kind of weird circular nature of this story. So basically, as VK has become a more restrictive environment and kind of more reflective of the wider Russian internet, dissent has shifted to another platform, Telegram, which is run by the same person who set up VK, Pavel Durov. So it's kind of incredible that one person has had this major effect on the Russian internet. And when he left Russia, now he's thought to be in Dubai, he took the space for dissent with him, basically, to Telegram, which the Russian government actually tried and failed to block back in 2018. So since the war in Ukraine, Telegram has overtaken WhatsApp to become the top messenger in Russia, more so than VK. It's a really fascinating story, Morgan. I'm really interested, from the people you spoke to, Like, do you have a sense of what VK looks like, particularly around the war in Ukraine at the moment? Is it, is it is its content shifting to kind of reflect the fact that it's now essentially or more government controlled than it was before? Or are we still seeing kind of dissent and things like that on there? So I think, I mean, since the war broke out, there's been a new law passed in Russia, which basically can convict people who spread what is deemed to be fake news about the war to up to 15 years in jail. So that's quite serious. And so obviously, like companies have tried to comply with that. So that means for a company like VK, that's wiping off anything that is basically anti-war off the platform. So, I mean, there are some posts that are still up, but it seems from people I've spoken to that that's more a sense of it is quite difficult just to to censor everything on a platform. But, I mean, there's also people who've had their accounts banned for posting things that are against the war. So I think it's kind of this story that was happening all the way through VK's history, just... The Russian government is tightening its grip on the Russian internet. VK is also part of that internet. And so it's just becoming more and more restrictive, like the space around it. It must be very, very difficult. And, and you mentioned this in, in, in the discussion that we just had for these companies that saw themselves as sort of cosmopolitan global companies. But because of the 
country that they were founded in, as you say, they were kind of allied to the Russian government or people that were close to the Russian government for funding. So now they find themselves increasingly isolated. It's a really, really good story. Do check it out on our website soon. We'll put a link to it in the show notes when we can. Uh, And if you have any thoughts on that story, maybe you're a VK user who can no longer access their profile or something like that, or maybe you've used it in the past, do let us know, podcast at wired.co.uk. Amit, now this week you've been looking into ITER, which is a vast, hugely expensive experimental nuclear fusion reactor that's being built in the south of France. Now, for some people, it represents the dawn of a limitless clean energy revolution. And for other people, it's almost pure science fiction. And more than a decade ahead of it even going online, it's facing a major problem that you've been looking into. Yeah, that's right, Matt. Thank you. So yeah, first, maybe a bit of background might be useful. So nuclear fusion is a new way of making energy where traditional, uh, so where traditional nuclear power plants rely on fission, which is splitting atoms to create energy. Fusion power aims to make energy by smashing them together. This is the same type of reaction that powers the sun. Um, Fusion is really, really difficult to do on Earth, though, and scientists have been trying to do it for decades. And um, ITER is the biggest attempt. It's a multinational, multi-billion dollar project that's exploring how to start a fusion reaction going and how to control this burning plasma that gets created for long enough that it can be used to make energy. Um, So ITER's fuel uh, are two isotopes of hydrogen called deuterium and tritium. But the big problem with ITER is that tritium is really, really rare and it's already starting to run out. Um, Now, I'm not an expert in nuclear fusion, but that seems to be a fairly major oversight if one of these very important fuels is running out now back when this project was conceived and it's worth bearing in mind it's already very over budget and very delayed but back when this was conceived they thought there would be enough fuel right about now but now scientists aren't so sure so what has changed in this situation around this fuel yeah, so basically, they, you're right, they knew this was a rare substance when they were kind of conceiving these reactors, but they kind of went for it because they didn't really have any other options. But there are two issues with tritium. The first is that it's not being produced at the same rate that it was before. So the tritium that's used in fusion experiments like ITER and other ones like the JET Tokamak in the UK um, come from a very, very specific type of nuclear fission reactor called a heavy water moderated reactor. But a lot of the reactors that are available to supply tritium for fusion research are reaching the end of their working life and there are now less than 30 left in operation worldwide 20 in Canada four in South Korea and two in Romania um, and they each only produce about 100 grams of tritium a year um, but this is not really a viable long-term solution like if you have to get your power if you have to get your fuel for nuclear fusion from nuclear fission it's sort of pointless because fusion is supposed to be a cleaner and safer alternative to traditional fission power Someone I spoke to said it would be an absurdity to use these like dirty fission reactors to fuel clean fusion reactors. So, as well as being a byproduct from these old school nuclear reactors, tritium is also coveted in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. So there's kind of this competition for this material going on. What? Why is it important for weapons as well? Yeah, so tritium basically turns a nuclear bomb into a hydrogen bomb. It essentially increases the yield of nuclear weapons and making them much, much, much more powerful. And the nuclear weapons industry has, is where tritium was largely used before this fusion research started kicking off. But they don't have access to all the same sources because Canada won't um, 
essentially won't allow its tritium to be used um, in, in weapons. So a lot of the weapons programs end up making it themselves through various means that we'll talk about a bit later. So it's super rare. Basically, our only source of it is by existing nuclear reactors. And there's all this competition for the material because it's important for nuclear weapons. So it sounds like a bit of a a bad recipe already. But then there's another problem, and that's that tritium is also pretty volatile. So even if we could make enough of it, it doesn't tend to hang around for very long. And that is one of the reasons why tritium is extremely, extremely expensive. Yes, by some estimates, it's the most expensive substance on Earth at about $30,000 a gram, which is um, pretty, pretty expensive. And um, yeah, exactly. So it's got a really short half-life or a relatively short half-life of of 12.3 years. So if you have 10 kilograms of tritium today in 12.3 years, you'll have five kilograms of tritium and a lot of helium. Um, So the problem is that ITER is not supposed to start operating using tritium for about 12 and a half years. So half of the tritium available today, they think there's about 20 kilos of it available worldwide, will have decayed into helium-3 by then. And the problem's only going to get worse after ITER switches on. So in 2035, when ITER starts its fusion uh, deuterium-tritium workings, then, then that's only the first phase of the kind of plan to roll up fusion. After that, there'll be a whole generation of new reactors called demo reactors, which are also going to need tritium as well. So there's going to be a real bottleneck. Okay, so we've got this problem that's coming down the line is in some ways already here. And actually, we've not even moved into this major phase of creating fusion reactors, which is where we'll really see the the pressure put on tritium. But this isn't, you know, an unexpected problem. Some scientists saw this coming. So there's this concept called the the tritium window, which is where all the tritium made by this old style of nuclear reactors would be usable, like you said, that 12.3 year window. Now, if it had been on time, ITER would have hit the sweet spot of that window where we are right now. Now it's delayed, so we don't have this or we don't have as much of this source as we expected. So where is this fuel going to come from instead? Yeah, it's a really interesting challenge. So a couple of good analogies are like someone said, it's like we're, we're going to run out of you know petrol before we finish building the car. Another person kind of likened it to like lighting a match and the match is, you're holding the match in one hand and the match is slowly getting burnt, burnt, burnt down. But the candle that you're supposed to light with the match isn't ready yet. And that's the kind of situation that they're in. So scientists knew about this right from the start of the fusion project. This idea of the tritium window has been around for at least 20 years, but they didn't really have any many, many other options because deuterium tritium fusion, although it's got many impracticalities, it's a lot of people think it's the only really plausible thing that they can do with current technology. It happens at about 100 million degrees, but other forms of fusion need even higher temperatures. So it's the kind of most feasible way of doing it. So to kind of get around this problem, they came up with this idea to make more tritium using the fusion reaction itself. So just to zoom out a bit, so a fusion reaction happens in something called a tokamak, which is like a donut-shaped vessel. And basically that vessel uses magnets to like create a really, really high pressure and that's what helps these atoms fuse. Um, so this idea of, of what's called tritium breeding is to put... So essentially that fusion reaction gives off neutrons and it fires all these neutrons out. But if you can surround the reactor with this, with something else, then to catch those neutrons, you can create tritium that way. So you, the theory is that you can wrap the tokamak, which is the nuclear fusion reaction chamber, in lithium-6. Um, 
a bit like a scotch egg. So if you imagine the fusion reaction is your egg and your lithium is your meat and breadcrumbs around the outside of the egg. So as the fusion reaction or the egg spits out neutrons, it changes the meat and breadcrumbs into tritium, which you can then <laughs> use to fuel your reaction. Um, that is an analogy that I hope, I suspect might be lost on some of our non-British listeners. Um, the problem with this breeding plan is that it's never been tested at scale and ISA itself is only doing to do small scale tests of this concept well, a, a delicious scotch egg with wrapped in lithium yeah. I don't sounds... know what was more confusing then the, the, my, my attempt to explain the breeding programme or my attempt to combine it with a scotch egg I don't know if that helped or hindered the, the process well I'm feeling a bit hungry now so it had that effect at least <laughs> so to, to kind of sum up where we're at at the moment we have this situation where we've got this very expensive potentially revolutionary but also experimental reactor that might be ready to start work but there's hardly any fuel to put in it and the fuel we do have is running out and super expensive now does this mean that the dream of nuclear fusion is going to be set back by a few more decades until we you know work out some other source of fuel or we work out a way to make it more efficient or does this mean that it's actually pointless if we can't use tritium to to power this reaction? Is there any point even going ahead with this, with nuclear fusion at all? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, and fusion has been sort of beset by delays and problems like this. It's been famously been described as the energy source of the next decade for about five or six decades. And some people I spoke to are really, really sceptical about whether fusion will ever work. And the second point is that we kind of need it to work pretty soon because we really need a replacement clean energy source that isn't going to like pump carbon into the atmosphere. So it's quite an urgent problem. And the problem with ITER is that it's not even the end goal. Uh, you know, it's an experimental reactor that's meant to test concepts and materials for the next generation of fusion reactors. But if ITER isn't even going to start running deuterium tritium fusion until 2035, we're probably looking at 2050, 2060 by the time the next generation of reactors that can actually test this tritium breeding technology are ready. So it does put a big delay in things. And it's not like this is a you know, small-scale experiment. There's been loads and loads of work over decades and decades that have been put into this. So if scientists from all over the world have been spending so much time on ITER and we're ending up in a situation where actually this, this project they've worked on might not, turning out, might not turn out to be the best option, what other options do they have? Do we have a backup plan? Sort of, yeah. So one of the criticisms of ITER is that it's swallowed up so much attention and so much resource that it's sort of been to the detriment of the other ways of doing fusion. Ultimately, the best way of doing fusion would be fusing pure hydrogen with hydrogen, which is kind of what happens in the sun, but almost impossible to recreate on Earth because you don't have that density of material. The sun, the reason the sun can kind of maintain its fusion reaction is because of the gravity that kind of holds everything together, whereas on Earth you need to use magnets to force everything together from the outside. Um, but some companies are trying things. So there's a company called TAE Technology, which is trying to do hydrogen boron fusion using a different type of reactor. And they've made some pretty big claims. They say they're going to be ready to get to the point where the fusion reaction generates more power than it consumes by 2025, which is obviously like 10 years sooner than ITER. Um, someone else I spoke to suggested that we could mine the moon for helium-3 and then put that in a different type of reactor, which... Um, admittedly seems quite like a far-fetched plan and perhaps probably slightly counterproductive in terms of getting to do things quickly. Yeah, it's interesting that 
people are suggesting that these new technologies might be able to leapfrog this, these existing re- approaches, which, as you described, have had a lot of work over a lot of time put into them, precisely because this fuel combination has always seemed like the most feasible combination. Now, having said all of this, I mean, I'm going to ask you the horrible question, the unfair question, which is everything you've said has made it sound like there might be some bottlenecks in nuclear fusion's future that makes it kind of impossible. How far away is this technology from being a reality, if it is at all, or if we can plausibly say it will be at all? Yeah, so I'm kind of of on the fence on this. So you can make the argument, and this is the argument that TA technologies make, that our materials knowledge and our AI knowledge have improved a lot in the last few decades, and that might help speed things along to the point where forms of fusion that were previously discarded as being too difficult or impossible are now feasible again. So to give you an example of this, I wrote a story a little while ago about how DeepMind had used had trained an AI to control a fusion reaction, which means that different types of fusion that were not feasible before because they were too difficult to control by traditional means are maybe now viable now. So that's one thing. Um, and as I mentioned, fusion projects are sort of fixated on this idea of getting to kind of net energy gain. So that's the point at which the reaction generates more electricity than is used to fuel it. And we'll probably see headlines in the next five years where a fusion reactor, maybe jet in the UK or, um, you know, some one of the smaller ones in the US might get to net energy gain. But the thing that those press releases and kind of news stories don't mention is that that's only half of the challenge because although you can get to kind of theoretical net energy gain, you still need a way of harnessing that energy, you know, turning that heat into electricity. So the way that nuclear fission reactors do that is often using kind of steam turbines. So the heat is used to generate steam, which then turns a turbine, which then, you know, creates electricity. And it would probably be the same with fusion. So the, the intense heat of the fusion reactor would be turned used to heat water, which would generate steam, which would turn a turbine, which would, would create electricity. But the problem with that is that that system is only about 40% efficient at turning heat into electricity. So it's not, you know, even when you get to the point where your fusion reaction is creating more electricity than it's using, you need to go beyond that to actually get to the point where you're creating electricity at a level that's commercially and practically viable. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, because like you say, we've got this technology, we're approaching a point where in a certain number of years, we might be able to say, well, this is a feasible way to create energy. That's not the same thing as building a power plant, you know, and we already know how long it takes to build a nuclear power plant. Looking in the UK, you know, plants that have been, you know, planned for 20 years are still, you know, being built. So, you know, the question almost isn't what energy system do we have today? It's what energy system do we have in 2060? And where does nuclear fusion fit in among existing nuclear technology, among solar panel, uh, among solar powers um, and wind energy? And I suppose part of this problem is that it might end up being a great solution that maybe just turns up too late for the energy system that we have. Exactly. And I think the given the challenges, it's almost like nuclear fission isn't ideal, but we have it now and we know it works. And yes, fusion would be a lot better and cleaner and safer in its in its idealized form, but that idealized form doesn't exist yet. So perhaps if we kind of want the benefits of fusion with some compromise, then fission, rolling out fission would be a better use of funds than this sort of like Hail Mary pass on fusion. Absolutely. Well, it's a super interesting story and our readers can head to wired.com to check out the full piece, which has a bunch of extra detail that's definitely worth reading. Now, from the future of energy to the very present of food, we had a reader 
write in Catherine wrote Catherine said they're a long time listener and first time emailer so thank you for writing in Catherine so Catherine was talking about this story that I was talking about a couple of weeks ago which is about um how if you reduce 20% of your beef consumption that can actually by 2050 that might turn into a uh 50% reduction in terms of the deforestation rate and Catherine wrote you often talk about the carbon dioxide cost of beef in the global context and about habitat habitat loss in the Amazon and Africa um, and Catherine says, we've cut our beef consumption almost down to zero as a family. But what's the data on grass-fed beef raised in the UK on farms that are not cutting down virgin forests? And I think this is a super interesting and important question because this gets into all kind of important bits about how our uh, food is grown and also how food impacts the environment in lots of different ways. So there's obviously deforestation, which is what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. And that can happen due to cattle ranching. So you cut down trees to graze cattle on that land instead or sometimes is to grow crops that will go into animal feed so you grow soy on a farm you know that used to be rainforest and that soy goes towards feeding animals so that's the kind of situation i was talking about a couple of weeks ago and that's how beef farming can relate to deforestation but of course as catherine suggests there's, there's this other whole other part of the dynamic which is the greenhouse gas emissions that beef production releases as well there are some uh, gas emissions related to land use change but uh, actually the main release of you know emissions from beef come from how that cow is grown itself and that's basically that as cats as cows maybe not cats but as cows digest grass they they burp up methane uh, and it's to do with the way their kind of stomach works so actually grass grazing doesn't diminish these emissions that come from you know, essentially this cow just being alive. You know, cows produce a lot of methane while they're alive, while they eat. So the longer their cow grazes for, the worse their carbon emissions, essentially. Now, that said, grass-fed systems do have some benefits, and there are some studies that suggest in very specific circumstances, grass-fed systems can increase biodiversity and perhaps even offset some of the emissions by building soil organic matter. Although it's worth noting the evidence on this is is kind of mixed. I think there's an environmental scientist called Jonathan Foley that has some quite good rules around beef. He has three rules. He says, eat much less of it, don't waste it, and if you do eat it, source it from farms that build soil carbon. And I think that's a really, really good rule. It's not like this form of beef is great and this form of beef is awful. It's about, you know, if you eating less is the, the best thing. So, Catherine, you're already doing the right thing. But if you are going to source it, try and source it from a, from a farm that increases... Um, soil carbon and it being grass-fed alone is not necessarily an indicator of that because as I said it means they spend a lot of time burping up methane in fact sometimes more methane than they might do if they went into feedlots but um, if you can find out where it's sourced from or find out a bit, about, a bit more about that farm's production you might get an idea of how, how good they are in terms of their carbon footprint. Um, really quickly Catherine also had a question about sheep she said if you send them up to a mountain where you can't grow crops for human consumption Aren't they quite efficient at turning Twiggy Heath into meat? And actually, this is a really, really related point because the reason sheep have quite high emissions is they burp up methane too. They're a ruminant as well, just like cows. And so when they're, even if they're eating that heather and things like that, um, they're taking carbon that was locked up in plant matter and essentially eventually burping up methane that warms the environment. And also there's kind of problems with kind of diminishing these kind of ecosystems. But I think the, the broader point that Catherine is getting at is, isn't it better to 
have animals eat stuff that humans can't eat because it's not like we were ever going to eat that heather anyway. So from that point of view, they seem quite efficient. And I think that's, it's intuitive. But what you have to bear in mind is that animals are a less efficient way in terms of land use um, from getting calories because humans can also just grow the crops that grow on land and eat that directly. So, you know, what we could do is grow crops somewhere else in the land and then just leave the heather to grow and turn into a natural ecosystem itself. You, you kind of don't necessarily need sheep in that system. It's not usually animal-based systems, not necessarily the most efficient way. And the most efficient animals are something like fish or, or chicken. They're a lot more efficient than sheep or cows. That's really, really fascinating, Matt. Thanks for that. And thank you for that question, Catherine. Um, I would encourage readers to write in with similar questions. I want to turn Matt into sort of an agony aunt for the food uh, food industry. Ask him questions about whether you can eat, what the best brand of cheese is for carbon emissions, whether a sandwich is better than a wrap. We, these are the questions we want, and we want Matt to answer them in a new segment I'm calling Matt Reynolds' Lunchbox. <laughs> Please write in. Can't wait. Um, and if you have anything else to write about that's not food related or you know, about any of the things we talked about this week or in any recent episodes of the show, please let us know. We love feedback. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Uh, and that's about it. That's all we've got time for. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.